Welcome to what could be our first episode of a podcast with this setup called Why Westland or Merging Churches Post-COVID or what else could we call this podcast? Making it up as we go. Or uh, planning in-person events and then shifting to the live stream focus. So, um, so yeah, this is this uh, tonight is our uh, Wesleyan Church denomination chat for Tallgrass at the Well, and uh, so Tallgrass Church and the Well are in the process of merging. So we've been in this uh, process since March, really, since Josh and I had a first conversation over coffee at Public Hall here in Manhattan. And uh, since that first conversation, the uh, ball has been rolling forward, and and it's it's it hasn't stopped. So um, we are in the process of merging our budget starting January one, and uh, we're having all the conversations. Uh, I think Pastor Sarah described it as a zipper. We're kind of zipping together uh, increasingly as we go here. So we're very excited about it. But we uh, did have some from Tallgrass Church who had questions about the Wells Wesleyan denominational affiliation. So that's what this meeting is about. And um, we have a a bunch of questions already um, cold or, that's not the right word, procured. Uh, We may have some others come up here. um, And so we'll have plenty of time and space to to hear uh, about those questions. But uh, very thankful to have Brian Smith with us. He's lead pastor of Westview Community Church here in Manhattan, Kansas, uh, Wesleyan Church. Yep, give it up for Brian, yep. And Nate Rovenstein, lead pastor of Connect Church in Lawrence, Kansas, Lawrence, Kansas, but also district superintendent for the uh, Kansas District of the Wesleyan Church. And uh, both of these guys have been involved in this process of Tallgrass at the Well um, exploration of Better Together, moving into merger uh, very early on. So we're very thankful for both of them, especially thankful for Nate driving up from Lawrence to to be with us this evening. So... um, well, the first thing that was on my mind was I just wanted people to get to know you guys a little bit. So if you would both mind, I wouldn't mind sharing just a little about yourself and your ministry and uh, just share with us a little bit. Yeah, so I, uh, Nate, as you said, Nate Rovenstein, my wife Janet, we've pastored in Lawrence since 1987. Uh, I think the math on that is 34. Four years, and uh, we have three daughters, um, all who grew up in Lawrence, who grew up in the church. Uh, we moved there. Uh, the church was a church development pro- uh, project and a sort of a church plant, really, a church renewal. And God's been good, and we've enjoyed our time there. Um, my three daughters are all married. Um, my oldest daughter, Chelsea, lives in Wichita with her husband, who's the pastor at First Wesleyan Church there. My middle daughter, Jamie, lives in Colorado with her uh, husband, and she's a teacher out there, and my youngest daughter, Kylie, is a co-pastor at the Olathe Wesleyan Church uh, with her husband, Dylan, and I have four grandchildren who are just the delight of my life. A couple of years ago, we took on the additional role of being district leader here in Kansas. We're kind of changing our model in the district and trying to move to a less, uh, so, so, so to save money at the district level, uh, it's allowed me to transition out of Connect a little bit in since that we've raised up some younger staff that have taken on a lot of my responsibilities. So I'm about 50-50 uh, in my responsibilities between two, both organizations. So for now, I think that's enough. That's a little bit about me. I'll certainly probably answer some more of it later. So let's see. Um, 
I've been married for 34 years to my wife, Kara. We have two boys. One's a pastor up in Illinois, and one is here in Manhattan. They're, yeah, they're getting up there in years. That means I am too. So anyway, uh, I'm kind of a late bloomer. I, I was an unchurched kid in a Catholic home and fell in love with a Baptist girl, and that really messed me up and, uh, and put us on a journey. Uh, so for the first eight years, I uh, was exploring. I, I came to faith in my 30s, but I worked in healthcare all these years, a lot of years as a paramedic and as a in administration, hospitals, and things like that, and uh, felt a calling a number of years ago. This is my starting my seventh year already, my goodness, at Westview as lead pastor, all that journey through lay life, and, and so really enjoying at Westview is, uh, it's a, I think it's a church that never sleeps. Um, we have seven missionaries from our church around the world. We just birthed out a sex trafficking ministry that's rock and just starts their second home. Uh, just, it's a neat place to be. It's a really outward-focused church that's but it just never sleeps, it's, so it's been a joy being there. Uh, I also get to serve with Nate. Um, I get to lead the revitalization team for the district, so we go around in the churches that want to kind of reinvigorate their hearts, rediscover culture, and get back to their first love. That's what we do. We go in and we resource them, and so I get to serve along with Nate and help any churches that are struggling, and so that's kind of, that's kind of fun too. And I've known you guys for a while, so it's kind of fun all around, so... Cool. Thanks so much. I, I've uh, told some here as we in our church and, and outside of our church, as we've explored this collaboration, that it just dawned on me that if I were to sit down and choose uh, pastors in town to get coffee with, uh, three of them, probably in the top five or top ten, would be the Wesleyan pastors, which would be Josh Siders here at the well, you at Westview, and then Art Matheny at True Church as well. So that's another Wesleyan church here locally, close to St. George. So yeah, it's been a lot of fun hanging out uh, as we've been able to. Um, so we have the hard-hitting questions that would come later, you know, about church polity. What, what in the world is connectionalism, and, and why is that a good thing? You know, what, what's the Wesleyan view of baptism? Uh, what, what is meant by entire sanctification? We have those questions coming. I know everyone's excited for those. But I, I was wanting to hear, why are you excited about being Wesleyan, if that's in fact the case? Yeah, I think uh, my wife and I, I guess our journey was through several churches and denominations. Disciples of Christ actually was one right before we came to Westview in 2000, so we've been there 18 years. Um, and it was the first time we really asked a lot of questions of a church. And um, for me, for a late bloomer in life, uh, 33 years old, discovering Christ, uh, I love their missional heart, and it captivated me from the start. And it's something that the church nationally, internationally, has been very... Um, stays highly engaged in. It's a very, and so for us, it was the best landing place because I think just in general for me, I saw how God pursued me for 33 years and now I just have a heart that same way. And, the, and within a Wesleyan denomination, we have tremendous support. And I've got to travel actually internationally too into a lot of missionary efforts and things like that. And just, it's a great place to land for me for that reason. And I love that heart of that theology. Yeah, for me, I I didn't choose Wesleyanism. It chose me in the sense that I grew up. Both my grandfathers were pastors in the Wesleyan Church. Uh, my father and mother deeply entrenched. I my family is one of the like families in our denomination. When you say my last name, um, there's still people. Oh, I know your grandfather. Oh, your dad. Uh, it's taken me 37 years to sort of people might know me instead of my family. So. 
for me though, it, what I what I can the way I can answer that question is to to learn how to say how I learned to appreciate what what found me in the sense of. Uh, and, and this is not a critique of other theological uh, backgrounds or whatever, but like when I went to seminary at Nazarene Seminary and I began to understand Wesley's theology of love and his heart for both holiness and love. So God is described as holy love. Like if there's one definition of God that I think captures who God is, it's holy love. And this idea that God is not only other and different and 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 holy, but he loves us in a way that is unfathomable. And so I began to get the heart of Wesley's teaching that that love is what is at the core of what drives us, what the core of what changes us and transforms us. And and I think at the end of the day, what I appreciate about Wesleyanism and Wesleyan theology, again, other theology emphasizes this, but particularly so in Wesleyan theology is that that love can truly change us, transform us. Like we're born again, we are a new creation in that moment. We don't you know, I tell people all the time, when you're born again, you're like, you're whole. You don't later grow a lung as a baby, right? You're, you're a whole baby. But holiness and the holy love of Wesley teaches us that God really can take broken things and transform them, not just sort of cover them with his blood and say, well, when you get to heaven, this will all be worked out. Wesleyan theology, I think, teaches that, again, with other theologies, but Wesleyan theology particularly teaches that there is a transformation that love can accomplish in individuals, in families, in churches. And that's why I was so passionate about taking a church that was about to die and seeing what love could do there in, in Lawrence. And then in culture. And that's why Wesleyans are equally concerned about what's happening in our culture but not because we're trying to be culturally relevant or because we're trying to keep up with the latest societal norms, but because we think that holy love transforms communities as well. So understanding that theology as an adult is what made me say, yeah, this is the tribe I want to hang with. And I can tell you, we don't always live up to that. You know, um, if anybody has concerns about Wesleyan theology, I will double those concerns because I know the inside story. Like, I know the places where we've fallen, where we've fallen off, you know, haven't met, met that. But I can tell you there's a heart for that in our, in our tribe. That's why I'm excited to be a Wesleyan. So uh, I'm, I'm originally Wesleyan um, because of a job, <laughs> because they hired me. Uh, uh, Eric Norris at Real Life Church hired me to, to be the, the teaching pastor of the well. But I've stuck around, and, and actually my roots go way back. I had uh, one of Brian's sons in uh, my youth group at, at uh, Westview for a season. So I actually have long, long, uh, uh, deep roots of the Wesleyan Church, even before getting hired. But anyway, why I've stayed is because I really, um, there's some, some unique, uniquely missional things happening um, in, in the larger denomination that is trickling down into the districts and to the local churches. So um, the roots of the Wesleyan Church uh, are tied to Methodism and, and John Charles Wesley and, and, and George Whitfield. And the the revivalism and the and the the just the burning heart to see people turn to Jesus, and using unconventional methods to do that. Meaning, um, they went out into the fields and preached, which was unheard of. They the uh, commercial wisdom at the time, and why why John Wesley was 
uh, given the left foot of fellowship is because he went out to the fields to preach to where the people were instead of expecting them to come to the church building to preach um, to them there. And so I love that the Wesleyan Church has that in its roots, uh, that, that we will do everything except sin to go reach people for, uh, with the love of, of Christ. And so our particular, so we have those, those, um, those, those long roots from the beginning of Methodism, but our particular branch of, of Methodism really was started um, with, with justice in mind, which I really appreciate. So we, we um, branched off of the Methodist church that was pro-slavery. We were anti-slavery, so we said we, we believe that, that all people should be free. And, and in particular with that, well, in, in conjunction with that, we were pro-women in ministry from the beginning. I think, in fact... Uh, we, were, we were pro-women at, at large. The, the first woman voted in a Wesleyan church in New York, I think, is one of our, our pieces of history there. So there's always been this pro-justice, pro-freedom mindset that doesn't become its own mission, which, which I think is really important in the social justice age that we're in, that everybody's looking for a mission. Um, well, we have a great commission. We already have a mission that we're on, but we see these pro-justice elements as a part of fulfilling the great commission to, to see that people are free, to see that, that women uh, are equal. And I, I love that uh, there still is this, this red-hot passion for, for mission uh, and, and including those things in there. In fact, um, the Western Church has really invested in its pastors and leaders uh, to see that that, that mission keeps uh, burning hot and bright into the 21st century and beyond, um, partnering with organizations like Exponential and seeing that our um, DSs and other pastors and leaders go, uh, district superintendents, uh, Nate, the, the big kahuna, um, <laughs> um, are, are trained and, and, and are, are um, at the cutting edge of what God is doing on the, not just the global mission field, but the home mission field as well. And so we, as a Wesleyan church, um, have, have wanted to get back to, can, can we undenominate in that sense? Can we get back to this movement-centered, uh, gospel-centered, preaching-centered uh, posture to see the gospel go forward um, and, and to get back to that. And actually, we, we were explaining, um, I was in a cohort with other pastors and leaders where we, ex- we were explaining and, and wondering out loud to some of the, the, the brightest missional minds that there are, missiologists and other theologians, um, can we, is it possible to get back to this movement-centered ethos? And, and the answer was no one's ever really done it before, but we would like to be a part, and we're paying attention to the Wesleyan Church because we think you guys could do it. That's why I love being a part of the tribe. Yeah, and I'll just throw on there, that's part of why we've gone to the model uh, that we have in Kansas of, you know, reducing the administrative level of the district superintendent. And that's the question when, when I'm with the, 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 the national leaders, they're asking that question every meeting I'm at. Can we become a movement again? Which I think is a phenomenal question. You know, and part of it is I, I, we don't know but we're trying, I can tell you that there is a concerted effort for us to think, let's have enough structure to keep theological truth intact and to keep community, right? You, you have to have some structure for those things. It requires some money. It requires some bylaws, all that, but not so much structure that it keeps the spirit from moving in revivalistic 
reforming kind of way. So Josh is exactly right that that is not just lip service by a few people here and there. That is a large part of our movement right now. And, and that's, that's really exciting to me. Just a couple of comments. Um, I, this just clicked for me why, um, as I've gotten to know you even more, Josh, since we've been exploring this, this collaboration uh, and how it fits with Wesleyanism and his story, reading about his life and how he took the gospel out into the streets and was, it was unprecedented at the time. And, and that's how you're always thinking. And that's the kind of, that's the kind of church we want to be about, you know, and, and want to be. And, and I think as Tallgrass Church, we've, we've, uh, we've been very open to the unconventional ways of reaching people, you know, and I think some of our resilience through the pandemic was that, you know, meeting out at the park and people thought that was cool. It wasn't cool enough to grow really big and fund everything, but it, it was at least an, uh, you know, a, a openness to that unconventional method to get the message out there. And uh, I look forward to that being part of our church merging, but also just what, what could be with uh, the future of the Wesleyan denomination. And um, there were several things I wanted to circle back on. Let me see if I can, can do that adequately. Um, you, you were commenting about um, the, the idea that the, the love of Christ isn't just the blood covers you when you die, you go to heaven, but actually transforming now, you know, our lives now, families, and actually society itself, which uh, maybe is different than some traditions that, that some in our church have grown up in. And I'm curious, is that related to the, the Wesleyan idea of entire sanctification? Am I off on that? And, and so if so, could you kind of speak to that a little? We, they, did, they had very little prep on these questions. So, but that is a question that, quite honestly, we're asked about, I'm asked about the most. That is sort of the doctrine that is distinctive to Wesleyan theology that, if, if I can say it in it just honestly sometimes gets the worst press. You know, entire sanctification, what does that mean? But I think at the core, it is this belief that in this lifetime, God continually is transforming us. Now, just as a bit of a, a little history here, Wesley taught that doctrine differently than it was practiced in the church in the sort of revival movement of, you know, say 1920 to 1960 or 70, which became very much a, I'm saved, you know, and now I have this experience and now I'm entire, entirely sanctified. So that it was sort of a one step, two step, now I'm holy. Um, Wesley taught it much more as a process. And, and I believe he, that is way more biblical. And Wesley's thinking was that there is the God's holy love holy, can wholly transform us. And he, when he talks about entire sanctification, we're not talking about perfect practice. We're talking about practice. We're not talking about practice. If you get that reference, all right, there we go. Uh, yeah, a little Allen Iverson there, Phil, you got it. Uh, but, 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 but he's talking about, he's talking about uh, the transformation of our heart into a, a holy desire to please God. So, so for me, I, here's what, I, I never use that terminology, but every Sunday I'm asking people to step into all that Jesus has for them. And I've just come to the conclusion that if I keep preaching that the Holy Spirit can transform you, I'm going to leave it up to the Holy Spirit to do that work. But I'm going to always hold out the hope and the belief that God wants us to be more like Jesus 
tomorrow than he does today. And I do think there comes a point in our lives where, you know, we kind of we realize there's no reason for me to hold anything back from Jesus and the Spirit at this point. That doesn't mean I get it all figured out. It just means that I'm going to really just let him have control. And then, as my friend who passed away not long ago, Alo Lippi, used to say, and then I have to do it again the next day right? And the next day and the next day. So somewhere in that process, the old school Wesleyan sort of actually it, Phoebe Palmer kind of understanding of that was I'm saved, I'm sanctified, I'm holy. It's, it's way more Jesus tran- saves me, he transforms me, and somewhere along the line I just surrender completely to him. And then he has freedom to work in every corner of my life. That doesn't mean I don't sin again. That doesn't mean I don't have struggles again. That doesn't mean I don't need accountability and discipline. In fact, it, it invites the Holy Spirit into those disciplines at a deeper level because there's nothing I'm holding back. So in that, in that sense, my, my entire life is open to his sanctification. So that's how I interpret that. I'm giving my entire life to his sanctifying work rather than some sort of a finished product. And I think that is, I mean, accurate Wesleyan theology as I would explain it. I don't know if anyone else... I actually wanted, I appreciate your comments there. That's great. Very helpful. Um, and um, I was, it, it probably alleviates some of uh, one of our elders, Ron Goodman's concerns, because he, he said he, he will look at his Wesleyan friends and say, tell me, look me straight in the eyes. You've, you've never sinned, you've never sinned in the last week, you know, and, and, uh, uh, but I did. I did want to to hear from you on this, Brian, because we uh, one of our first conversations uh, when we were exploring this collaboration. I asked you about this because I knew it was a question I had and others would have, and I really appreciate hearing from you on it as well. If you go for it. I hope I can repeat <laughs> same thing in that coffee session. You know, to me, it's really simple. Uh, the great commandment is love God with our whole heart, soul, and mind. And I think we think of our lives as a spiritual house. The more we allow, the way Christ transforms our heart, we just let the Holy, we just keep kicking rooms open and letting that light flood in. I think Paul's concept of perfection is a goal we're always heading towards. But the shift in us is when I really am changed by who Christ is and what he's done for me, it's like I'm not worrying about the punitive nature of my sin. I'm worried about the relationship. I, it crushes me now because of what it does to my relationship with him and with with others. So why would I not want perfection as a goal? But I, I've never been taught in all the theology classes that it's, I've arrived. You know, and I think some people might believe that, but it's like, but why would we not shoot perfection? And I think also, why wouldn't we think of ourselves as saints who sin versus, from all my traditions I've been through, depraved and never just being limited that I can't get to that goal because I'm just, I'm but a worm or whatever. Those, those things I really struggled with when I moved to the different, but when I see the fullness of what the Holy Spirit can do in me, why would I not shoot for that goal? And it's never about being arrived, but that I love Christ as much as I would not. It crushes me when I do things. It hurts that relationship. Yeah. And that might have been at the center of our conversation. So I, I base it off the great commandment. It's just I'm going to love him with my whole I'm striving every day to love him with my whole heart, soul, and mind. And, and I love that phrase. I've used it many times that we need to change our language from more sinners who God loves to the where saints who fall short because I just think it changes the way we think about who Jesus is and what he wants to do. Like a father would never approach, oh, you know, like think about your kids. You're never going to start with you wretched child. Live up. You start with you're my child and what you're doing, I love you enough to say stop, you know. And so um, 
It is, a, it is, it really, when, when understood correctly, it's a very optimistic view of grace. We believe grace can do more than we often, that it is often allowed to do in our lives. And again, I just keep saying this. I won't say it anymore. I'm going to apologize one more time. I'm not trying to throw any other theological perspective under the bus here. I'm just trying to explain who we are and, and why I'm attracted to this, to this idea. Because when I do sin, as opposed to my, you know, to look my friend in the face and say, when I do sin, it, it isn't so much, oh, God's going to get me. It is like I've, I, I've, I've broken my heart because I recognize I've broken the relationship. And there's just a difference when we get to that point of letting God into every part of our lives. And, and I can see the difference in my own spiritual life. Like when I got to that point, for me, I can remember the night that happened. Not everybody can, but I can remember the night where I'm just like, there's nothing I'm not going to let you try to change in my life. But up until that point, it was like, no, you can have this part, this part, this part, but I'm holding this part back. So there's just a difference that happened in that night. Anyway. That's good. And as we're, even as we're verbally processing this, I'm thinking of my own journey going from some more highly reformed tradition that's very focused on my sin, almost morbid, woe is me, oh wretched man that I am, like that almost needing to go through that groveling process all the time. But then coming to this point that, wait a second, I am... I'm a chosen child of the King. And so for me personally, this is kind of, um, I, I have reflected on your thoughts about, you know, it's an emphasis on the celebration of what's already been done. I'm a saint who sins, not a sinner who um, has, you know, every once in a while does a saintly action. Um, I think for me, it's um, a lot of times when I engage with the Lord's Supper, I, I think, am I approaching that from a, a morbid standpoint of I need to, you know, mortify my flesh before I take this, or is it more celebratory in, in posture? That's, that's some of where my thoughts have gone with that. On. I do want to say this, that when we need to confess sin, we need to confess sin. <laughs> like, like there are times when a oh, wretched man that I am, right, needs to be a part of our theology, because when we fall short, we cannot deny the reality of that. And that's the danger that's the, that, yeah, every theological perspective has its step too far. And that's the step too far for Wesleyanism that gets back to where you have people who say, I haven't sinned, because why? Because we want this optimistic view, so we don't want anybody to know we haven't lived up to that optimistic view. And that is the danger of that theology when you go a step too far. So I just want to be really clear, the language, oh, wretched man or woman that I am, uh, shouldn't be off the table for us Wesleyans either. And adding that last point in there, too, is, is this is, again, nothing. We, we really reflect on how God sees us through Christ and how he sees us through the righteousness. Through, I mean, he sees us through the lens of Christ, and that changes. That's where I get the higher vision of myself, not because of anything I did, right. but because he sees me through his redeeming work, and I'm righteous. In how, so that's just, that helps me a lot. And, I, and it helps us encourage people who, are, who struggle with sin and, and working in growth and sanctification, but... Thanks so much. Um, well, I, I did also want to circle back. Uh, you had mentioned there's uh, ways in which you've seen the Wesleyan denomination kind of fall short yeah. to its own ideals, and, and you have hope for the future. Is that a good, uh, good question to put before you? We were talking about it before. Yeah. So, so I think, and I kind of alluded to it here just a couple of times, so let me just flesh it out just a little bit more, and, and because... Um, I, I think in a situation where the, the folks at Tallgrass are like considering this merger and, and what it means to join a tribe when you have not been connected, I think it's important 
that you hear from me representing the denomination in this context, it feels like a heavy responsibility, to be honest, but that we're not perfect. And one of the things that really has happened in our denomination is a deep entrenchment of legalism. And so, like, a perfect example, like, think about, I think you all know my town of Lawrence, right? So, uh, when, I, when I moved to Lawrence in 1987, there was um, a group of people who, I, who I, I say were the victims of legalism, not the perpetrators. All the perpetrators had either died or moved away. And these folks were living in fear. Uh, they were worried about offending God at every turn. Um, they had a hard time laughing and enjoying life because they were so committed to this holiness thing, right? This idea of being like Jesus, that it became all-consuming to them, to the point where that was all about what I don't do, you know, in order to protect this, this relationship with God. And then hypocrisy gets in. And legalism is just, just ugly. It's just ugly. And legalism has had sort of a, a stranglehold on our denomination. Now, I think that is absolutely being loosened uh, dramatically. And so people like Josh, who are newer to the denomination, I say newer, you still have a long history, haven't seen that as much as I have. I grew up with that, and I love my grandparents, but they were part of that just because that's all they knew. Uh, you know, my grandparents didn't have wedding rings and all, all the stuff you think about that was all about externals. They had, they had hearts of gold, but they were bound up by this idea that I have to look and act and say and do a certain things. A seminary professor said, you know, in Nazarene seminary said, you know, us Nazarenes and Wesleyans, we were holy. We didn't go to movie theaters, so God rewarded us by creating VCRs, you know, so it was a beautiful thing. And so it was his way of saying legalism is really stupid, you know. And so anyway, I see that, I see that definitely no longer like deeply influential, but I do see the remnants of that still in our movement. Um, And it's really sad to me because this holy love, this optimistic view of grace, this hope that we think the spirit can do in our lives is a beautiful thing. But when you try to do it yourself, it's an ugly thing. And that's what legalism is. So I would say that is probably the biggest sort of like skeleton in our closet as a denomination. But, but, I, but I see it less and less influential in our tribe. Um, that's, that's helpful. Thanks so much for that honesty and sharing um, that way. Um, I think you, we were talking before we started the camera about, well, if Wesleyan denomination is so great, why, why have so many people not heard of it? And um, so part of, part of with, so before some, one of you speaks to that, um, one of the reasons, a couple of the reasons I'm excited to continue this exploration of Wesleyanism is related to my own story, spiritual journey, but also Tallgrass Church. You know, we came out of a church that was Southern Baptist. We decided not to affiliate Southern Baptist uh, for a handful of reasons. One of them was view on women in leadership. Uh, so we had worked really hard to come to a, um, a more egalitarian view of women in the church. We worked very hard to bring our whole leadership team, our whole church to that point, and also the issues of social justice. Um, again, I, I also don't want to throw any any other denominations or faith traditions under the bus, but we, we were uh, not super excited about how SBC had began or where, where it was currently on social justice issues, especially related to, to race. And so it was it was really interesting for me to learn about Wesleyan denomination and its anti-slavery um, 
beginnings and, and social activism even since then. So, so I'm sitting here thinking, wow, as a church that wants to elevate women's roles in leadership, be socially active, uh, retain a, what I would say is a biblical view of uh, human sexuality, um, Wesleyanism is one of the rare denominations in that space. So I'm like, man, this seems like a, a really well-kept secret. So if you could, why, why has it... <laughs> Because a lot of times people are like, oh, I, didn't, I don't know about Wesleyanism, you know, so. Is that okay question for you? I, 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 have, I have an answer that I would give, but I'm curious. I, I think us as pastors would say the same thing. We might say the same thing about all of our churches, too. If our church is so great, why haven't people heard of it? So, um, there you go. Um, I think, I, uh, speaking as uh, pastor of the well, um, I would say one of the reasons that people in Manhattan haven't heard about the Wesleyan Church is because that's not the flag we fly the highest. I know Brian, I know Art well enough um, to, to say, like, we don't have Wesleyan in our name, not, not because we're ashamed of it or anything. It's just there's a lot of freedom in the Wesleyan Church to let the, like, not have the Wesleyan Church in the way of doing the gospel work. So... Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is, like, there are a lot of people who have come through the well and not known we're a Wesleyan church. Now, they would, if they went through membership and some of those levels of involvement, they would. We, we fly Jesus. We, I'm not trying to convert anybody to the Wesleyan church, um, I guess except Tallgrass. But anyway, <laughs> but we're, <laughs> we love y'all. Um, I, I want people to know Jesus. And I, I don't, I, if the Wesleyan church, if the name or something like that would be a hindrance, uh, or push people away. I, I want to get them in the kingdom first, and then and then we can have some of those other conversations. I think there's a lot of that going on. Where I, th- I think if like there was a lot of you know other other churches with their affiliation in their name, it lets people know up front, um, and that's fine. I just think um, that can also work against like expanding the tribe at the same time. But that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing because I think we, we've done a lot of good gospel ministry um, without it being directly tied. It's tied directly to Jesus and to the kingdom, not, not, a, not a name or a brand or anything like that. Yeah, I don't, I don't really know that I know the answer to that. I, I would think part of it is uh, what Josh said. I would also think that um, I, I wonder, again, I come from a little different perspective being a little older and being in the Western church for long. I do wonder if our legalistic, um, roots, uh, impact that some, um, but I, uh, I don't, I don't know. I, I know we're trying to change that, but I don't know that I really have a, a great answer for that, uh, to be really honest. Part, part of my, uh, question or thought is, um, is um, how to support other churches maybe that are lost, like like not lost, like Tallgrass Church was non-denominational, but was co- considering and, and wanting some sort of affiliation connection to something greater. So uh, whether we fly the Wesleyan flag high, but that the value that is being experienced, you know, when we get together and supporting and church planning and a revival, I think that's that's the part I'm, I'm curious about uh, in the future is, is um, you know, if, if God's doing something great through this tradition of Wesleyanism, then how do we uh, invite others into that um, 
and uh, so I'll be I'll be curious about that kind of that question moving forward. Um, well, there's some other questions. So yeah, if we need to circle back to anything, feel free to just grab the mic out of my hand. Um, but I know there's curiosity about just the general uh, ecclesiological polity, if you will, connectionalism, how how the hierarchy is structured, or um, or what the relationship of the local church to the denomination and vice versa. So that'd be a good question. I'll give a, a quick overview of that. So this goes back to our history, and Josh has talked to both guys. Guys talked already about the social justice, the and anti-slavery movement that that, that sort of was the, the compelling reason why we broke away from the Methodist Church. But what happened in that has marked the church in another way, because what the the real so the Wesleyan Church started in the north. And so it wasn't a pressing issue as pressing as it was in the South. But what happened is the bishops would tell these pastors, be quiet. Like that's, you have your own thing, but be quiet about it. And when these pastors said, we can't, this is an abomination. And so they began to continue to speak. And then when they, so when they broke away and formed their own connection is actually what they called it first, Wesley Methodist Connection, there was a a reactionary sort of DNA against heavy-handedness, top-down, telling us to be quiet. So from the very beginning, in the DNA of the Wesleyan polity, or ecclesiastical structure, there was this emphasis on the local church and on lay people. So every one of our committees at every level, local, of course, lay people are dominant, but at the district level, every board, every committee has equal number of lay and clergy, and at the national level. So there's an emphasis on lay people and their role in the great the Great Commandment, Great Commission, and there's an emphasis on the local church. So it is a unique sort of ecclesiastical structure that way. So for instance, each local church sort of selects their own pastor. I, you know, as a DS, I don't come in and say, here's your pastor, but I'm a huge resource. The denomination is a huge resource in the midst of a pastoral change. The districts and the denominations very much views their job to support and encourage the local church. Um, that, that there have been times when that has gotten out of balance. You know, it's gotten top-heavy. But an example of how that has a check and balance in this conversation about becoming a movement again, there's this push across the denomination to lower sort of the financial expectation of the local churches, which had gotten up as, as high as 12% in some districts. And the conversation now is that it gets to, tw- to 10% or lower everywhere. And that's a, a recognition that there's been too much emphasis on sending money you know, up this upstream instead of letting local churches keep it. So there is this, there is this, I think, not always perfect, but a pretty good emphasis for the local churches to flourish, but to still stay connected on issues like biblical sexuality and concern for justice and staying true to, you know, scripture. So there is still this emphasis and there's, there's still this sort of structure that helps us stay connected on those issues, but a real passion for the local churches to flourish in their own context. So we are a denomination, but I actually kind of wish we hadn't had kept the original word of the Wesleyan Methodist connection, because that's really how we operate, is a connection um, rather than a, a, denom- a heavy denominational structure. Uh, and it's in our DNA. So it's, it's encouraging to me that it's not just, gonna, it's not just like we just kind of decided this. This is in the core, and we've kept it, this idea of not letting the bishops or the district superintendents to get too heavy-handed. Again, 
our decision here in Kansas to go to a part-time DS is part of that movement in that direction. So I don't know if you guys have anything to add. And I appreciate you giving me a little heads up on connectionalism. I went right to Wikipedia to figure out <laughs> what that was. <laughs> it's like, wow, that's what it's called. The, um, I, think, I think what's kind of interesting a little bit about Westview, being honest, is that um, 20 to 30 years ago, we were a pretty rogue church in reference to our tribe. And, um, and, and the, I've served actually over six years now on the board, the district board, and um, we're still rogue, but we changed our kind of, we're rogue for the kingdom no matter what. But our tribe, you know, I, I've learned a lot of things about our tribe, and, and so much, what I've understood now serving on the board is that it's a real strong undergirding, is what, instead of a top-down structure, the district exists as an undergirding for local churches. We can't come in unless somebody really goes nuts, which we, were, we had that happen to us. And they came in and sat down with us, and we got a little weird for a time without a pastor. But anyway, just but that strength came in to help support and, and guide. But now I, now I serve on the revitalization team. And so what we do is we don't, we don't have any permission to walk into any church that's struggling and just say, hey, shape up. But we do let them know we're here, we're resourced, and when your leadership's ready, when we lose our first love, we want to come in and help you, and we resource them. So right now we're working with five, six churches, and just helping them discover that first love, getting back on cultural shifts. And, and so that's part of that undergirding. It's just like it's, but our local congregation is the highest voice outside of Jesus. You know, it's not the pastor. It's, it's that local congregation, local control, no bishop changing things. So I love that. But when we took, you know, one of the big issues is the building is that, you know, it even took me a while to figure that out is that we don't own the buildings, you know. And then as I've kind of processed over time, two things hit me. I'm not trying to sell anybody on this. One is we really don't own anything anyway. Our local congregation doesn't, you know, it's all, we are all stewards of everything that God's given us. But from a revitalization team, let me tell you the importance of when you, when your local congregation doesn't own the building is, as you know, all churches only have a certain lifespan. And when they close and don't have that ability anymore, we can come in and actually rebirth that resource or we can sell that resource. The money only goes to birthing new churches. So property monies only go back to, so it's always going to be church. And so one thing in the revitalization team, one pathway is closure. It's like when something's no it's on CPR no longer. If we have to sell that property, then we immediately take that money and we rebirth it into another church and starting another church. And so that's given me a perspective. Again, not to sell anything, but one is, do we really own anything? But two, having that larger church tribe mentality is we can continue those resources, continue the church. And that's been really, sometimes death of a church is actually a good thing. I mean, it's never really good, but it can actually birth something. And it usually does. We're always birthing something new with, with that. So it's not the last word. So I really enjoy that part of it. You guys covered several things there. Uh, one on the, the building thing, because that is a question that kind of came up. You know, Tallgrass Church and the well, no position to buy a big building or build a big building yet, unless the end of year giving is really strong, guys. Um, but what I hear part of what you're saying is um, instead, sometimes buildings, they feel like assets until they're big liabilities for churches. And so there's a, there's a potential strength um, with that aspect where the denomination owns that so that the process, um, if and when it comes to needing to shut down, it, it, it's a fluid transition to new birth. And that's something I'll be thinking about on that specific topic in the, the issue of stewardship. What does it look like to steward resources as a, as a church? 
Yeah. And, um, and I think part of what we, we're experiencing, you know, as Tallgrass Church exploring with the well, as we begin to move towards merger, eventually we're like, well, the pronouns change. We're like, this is our church. This isn't your church, my church, and we're collaborating. This is now our church. And I wonder if that same thing over time begins to feel the case with the, with the denominational connection as you, as people get to know what God is doing and who the people are and, and um, how God's working through the denomination. Um, and then you also mentioned the, the 10%. Um, that's something people have asked about. And we've talked about it in a few different meetings. Um, but as it pertains to Tallgrass at the Well and whatever that, that, that becomes called, um, we're in a de- we would be in developing church status, right, for some, for some time until um, we're able to scale up the giving back to the denomination, which would be the heart of our church um, to whatever that percentage is over time. Correct. Yeah. Any any further details that we want to share there on that? Yeah, I'll just and not to get too deep into the weeds here, but that money is divided in three ways. I don't know if you guys have talked about this, but one is to our denomination to to fund the national level uh, administration and initiatives. The second is for our educational institutions, which I think that is really money really well spent. It it produces leaders, lay, and clergy. It's not the only pathway to clergy, uh, or, or but it's, it's really helpful. So I think 3.25% of that goes there. And then the other is to the district. And in Kansas, we've already lowered, we've already met, we're already at 10%. And if legislation goes through at, at general conferences next year, um, the, the national assessments will go down. So we'll be under 10%. Um, if everything is passed away, I believe it will be. And lots of times I'm asked a question in the context of ROI, return on investment. And I just think that's a bad way to think about that money. I get it. Like, I'm asked that way by my own board. And it's a little harder for them to ask that now. Uh, they say, what's the return on investment? I say, you only have to pay half my salary now. So they, they can see the return on investment now, you know, so that's good for them. But... I, I think it, uh, I, I like to think, and I, I always, from so the first decision we made when we went to Lawrence is we're going to pay these assessments because to me it's part of being on the team. It's just part of what we do when you're part of something bigger. And, and I would hope that over time, Tallgrass at the Well begins to feel good about that, that, okay, this is just, this is good. I see value coming from this. I see a connection. I see we're part of something bigger. This is just part of what that costs. But I do know that's a sticking point. And I do know that is, especially for churches that haven't had to pay that, it's hard to understand. But yes, it's a five-year phase in. So as a developing church, you wouldn't know any of it the first year, and then it phases in over five years. So. Thanks. That's helpful. I appreciate you sharing about that. Um, and maybe we can talk some about the church type of church planning initiatives that are that are occurring. And I had us going past eight, so if anyone's looking at the clock, we're just going to keep going. But you have an hour and a half drive. Yeah. But I did want to. Oh, and we have decaf coffee, and you don't even drink coffee. Oh man, oh man, we're stuck here. He, this is a labor of love from Nate Rovenstein, folks. I uh, just wanted to mention you heard it here first. Uh, connectionalism. And it can be spelled C-O-N-N-E-C-T-I-O-N-A-L-I-S-M or C-O-N-N-E-X-I-O-N-A-L-I-S-M. So there you go. All right. Connectionalism. Um, before, maybe before we talk about church planning specific things and exciting things here locally and in the, in the state, 
maybe we can uh, knock off some of these other questions. Um, so I pulled up the Discipline of the Wesleyan Church 2016, because I wanted to peruse that before we met, and it's 481 pages. I've pulled it up multiple times, and I have not read the whole thing. That is a full disclosure to Tallgrass Church, to the well. Uh, okay, there's no pictures. That will be available in the show notes. <laughs> Uh, but there is, there is a question about baptism. So a lot of us come from a more, kind of a adult baptism tradition, but then some have come from, uh, whether it's Anglicanism or grew up Catholic and never were rebaptized. And, and actually, just side note, when Tallgrass Church, we um, drew up our constitution and bylaws, we left out any uh, necessary baptism as a uh, necess- necessity for membership because we kind of wanted to dodge that issue. Um, but I'm curious about uh, the Wesleyan view on that, because I believe you can dunk infants, correct? <laughs> we typically don't dunk them, but yeah. <laughs> You've been watching too many YouTube videos. You see now? Uh, so, yeah. So, so here's the thing. Yeah. If, so, so Wesleyans believe uh, there, there is... A, Wesleyans do allow for infant baptism, but it's rarely practiced. I don't know if you guys have. I, 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 it, it. I have actually done it once or twice, because for Wesleyans, baptism as an infant is a a, um, a recognition of what Wesley called prevenient grace or common grace, is how others traditions have said it. And it's, it's the idea that. Grace has gone before this child, and this child, it is not a statement that this child is now saved or in any way more prepared for heaven than the child who wasn't baptized. It's a recognition that God is at work in this family, and, and that this family is, is a place where this child will have a, a, a strong chance of walking in, you know, in faith. Most people don't understand that. That's why I rarely do it. I've had a very few people who have really been able to articulate that to me in their understanding. It is allowed in our discipline. And so I'm probably one of the few people in the Wesleyan Church that's ever actually baptized an infant. And I've only done it twice in 37 years. Because most people think that somehow this is a initiation ride into the kingdom. That somehow now this child is, is covered by grace and the unbaptized child isn't. So... Far more, 99% of our conversation and our practice is around adult baptism or ch- children, but, but baptism at your own, volitional baptism. Um, uh, we also allow for other forms of baptism like sprinkling and pouring. Again, I rarely practice. I love the visual imagery of, of dunking. Uh, I had a 95-year-old man who came to faith in Jesus. I was not going to dunk him because I didn't want to send him to Jesus, you know, after he was saved. It was a beautiful story of redemption. Of an, so I sprinkled him and, and felt really fine about that. Um, but so yes, so we believe it, I think like, largely like most traditions, that it is not the act of conversion, but it is a, a vital first step of obedience. It is an incredible anchor point for our faith. It's a, it's a symbolism of the washing, all those things. It's a statement of desire to follow Jesus, but by and large, it's practiced as a, an adult or uh, volitional baptism. I don't know if you guys have anything. 
And, and I, I completely follow. Believer baptism is important for us. We rock the roof. I mean, we just it's yeah. such an exciting event when it happens. Um, but I bet less than 5% of our church comes from a Wesleyan background. I think our predominant background at Westview, we're a big melting pot is Catholicism. So we have this conversation a lot about, about that initial doctrine in the Catholic Church versus what we have. So, but anyway, we, we just, we just, the immersion everything is so important to us. And so, but we're allowed that freedom of expression. We've had a couple, we've had one Catholic family we walked through that uh, I believe aren't actually baptized, but we express the importance of, it isn't this, and we express the importance of them when they're old, of an older age. But child dedication is what we do. Right. And child dedication is just almost as exciting. I mean, it's not, it's, it's not believer baptism, but we have the vows of the church that come behind the families. It's a really, um, I won't say emotional, but it's a very, very powerful event to where there's that commitment to come behind the child. And so we normally explain uh, child dedication to them. It's an easy, it's an easy ramp to... It's a good way to do the, those right, with child right, baptism. So. Right. Yeah, we, 100% similar. Um, where if we're in a conversation... And someone's interested in, you know, can I? I'm just. We've had a baby. Now what do we do? You know, we're gonna, we're gonna guide them towards a dedication, a baby dedication, and then um, we'll do, you know, believers baptism. You know, as soon as a um, someone professes faith, even if they are younger, making sure that that that's a. It's not just a. Um, all my friends are doing it, so you know, really, really. Um, discerning if the gospel is really taking root there. What I, I, I do want to say, just pointing back to the discipline, is I, I think this is a great example of how the discipline allows for certain things. So it gives some, some wide berth on non-primary uh, doctrine, right? But it doesn't say you have to do that at the local church level. You actually, you can, we can be more, um, uh, I don't know, uh, we, we could practice things like that uh, or give kind of tighter constraints than what the discipline actually allows for. And I actually like that. I like that there's a, you know, there's, there's different practices on, on ways to baptize. So do what is best for the local church. So someone from on high at the denominational level isn't writing uh, doctrinal platforms that we have to practice in that way. Right? Does that make sense? That makes sense. That, that, and and so that's that is one one thing that I really do like about the Wesleyan Church is it says here are here are your options to practice, choose, discern what is best at the local church level, and do that. Which is what it kind of sounds like you were you, and the the founders of Tallgrass um, were trying to do too is to say, hey, we want to stay out of this, uh, out of the weeds on on this particular thing. So I appreciate that. There seems to uh, there'd be alignment with the well on that too. Yeah, I just would say, so you you pointed out, so we're saying all this, the freedom the Wesleyan Church gives, and then we said we have a 465-page discipline, right? So, but to, 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 to illustrate the point of this desire to move it to a movement, I was just at a meeting a couple of weeks ago in India, Indianapolis, not India, Indiana, <laughs> Indianapolis, it's getting late, it's after 8 o'clock, uh, and there was, there is a, there at our general conference next year, there's a, what we call a memorial to reduce, the, they, they went through and said, how, what can we call out of here? And they're, they're this will pass, I'm sure. We're going to take a bunch of those pages out, which again is a desire and a recognition that if we're going to be a movement, there has to be some things we do that are different. We can't just keep adding to this. We got to make it so that it's something that people can read. So I, I wanted to show that as an illustration of this this honest conversation at the highest levels 
of can we become a movement again? And we realize, no, you can't if you have 460 pages in the book that you say is what's supposed to set you free to serve. So we're working on it. Cool. Sounds good. So you heard it here. 481 pages will be pared down to 474. <laughs> little, little by little, one travels far. Um, I, I appreciate hearing you guys talk on that, on that issue. And that, that was our heart was to not be restrictive in membership. So if someone, uh, if they, uh, maybe they were sprinkled as an Anglican and didn't feel compelled to be baptized as an adult, that there wouldn't be restriction in their leadership if they're clearly walking with Christ. And we just have to make sure they get dunked for them to do the next thing. But we really want uh, baptism to be celebratory. We would love this space here, as long as we have a lease here, to be filled with people and pulling out, filling up the tub and getting people dunked. Full immersion would be awesome. So that would be very cool. Um, I think we've kind of, we've covered a lot of the key topics. Uh, if you guys have other questions out here or follow-ups, uh, someone did text me one question. Um, this, <laughs> yeah. Um, so someone just wanted to hear um, just how you you reflect Christ and uphold Scripture. So maybe just your heart for for scripture and presenting Christ to people. Um, it's, it's not a super clear question, but it's, uh, that's, they just wanted to hear your heart on that. So if you, if you have read our doctrinal statement on scriptures, you'll see the word inerrancy in it. And that is either going to bring great comfort to you because we're still trying to hold to that high view of scripture, or it's going to concern you because we don't have the original manuscripts. And so that is kind of a trigger word for people. But, 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 and, and, and to be total full disclosure, I wish we'd use a different word there because to me, we're fighting a battle we can't prove because we don't have the original manuscripts. But what I do think it says is we care about God's word. And again, I, me saying that may cause some of you to say, wow, the word inerrancy shouldn't be in there. Wow, you said the word inerrancy shouldn't be in there. I, I recognize that. But what I think you'll see in the Wesleyan Church is a commitment to that on all issues. So the question for us is, what does the scripture teach us on that? Now, it's, it's not as black and white as we always have made it to be, that scripture says this because scripture has to be read through what Wesley called the Wesley quadrilateral. So, right, scripture, so I think of as as a baseball diamond. Home base is where you start and home base is where you end. And you don't really get credit for being stuck on second base or third base or first base, right? So home base is scripture, first base is in different order here for different people, but uh, mostly it's tradition, reason, and experience. So the scripture you know, what, is others, what does tradition teach us about it? That helps us understand the scripture. What does reason teach us about it? We, God gave us a mind, let's use it. What does our experience teach us about it? How does this play out in our lives? But we ultimately come back to scripture. That is not just one of the four. It is the goal and the beginning point of our discovery of scripture. So, so for Wesleyans, we believe in, we have a very high view of scripture. So that's the first thing. But we want to use our brains. We want to listen to others. We want to see it play out in our lives. So that helps us understand how to interpret scripture. So I, I, I don't tell people I'm talking about the Wesleyan quadrilateral in my sermon because that just loses them. But I use that filter almost every Sunday. And the second thing about scripture, which I think ties to the question, is scripture has one main purpose. That is to tell us the story of redemption from cover to cover. It's, it's not a science book. It's not a poetry book. It has facts in it, and it has poems in it, it has songs in it, it has psalms in it, it has, it has 
genealogies in it, but it's to tell us the story of Jesus from cover to cover. It's to tell the story of God's love for his human, hum, for humanity, our brokenness, his redemption, the rise, all of that. So whenever we're interpreting it, not only do we use a little tri- quadrilateral, we also say, where do we find Jesus in this? What does this tell us about Jesus? So we don't elevate scripture above Jesus. We elevate scripture so that we can know Jesus. So I think I think in the Wesleyan tradition, and I think we're holding pretty strong on this, and I think that then comes down to particular discussions like human sexuality. And so our question there is not what is trending in culture or what did, you know, someone else say about this, but how does Scripture help us understand this using the quadrilateral and looking for Jesus? So that's a little bit of a long answer, but high, high level of Scripture looking for Jesus in the midst of it all. Ron? Yeah, I think I'm good. Uh, position on the women in ministry because you're not being influenced. You can repeat this again. You're not being influenced by culture because you've been having women in ministry for a century or so, right? Right. So speak to how you see scripture and women in ministry. Yeah, so the, so the question Ron asked is, so our, our view of women in ministry is not tied to the current cultural conversation around that. Um, it's tied to our view of scripture uh, because, and so our view of women in ministry fits into that. So for me, the, the particulars, for us, the particular verses are always interpreted in light of the general revelation, the story from cover to cover. And the story from cover to cover is the, 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 the coming of the kingdom of Jesus. And so you see, like on the day of Pentecost, your sons and daughters, you know, there's, there's stuff in there for sons and daughters. There's, throughout scriptures, there's this elevation of women above wherever the culture at that time was. So you see stories like Deborah, and you see stories like Esther, and you see stories all throughout the Old Testament where these women were like, like I don't know how to, this may be the wrong way to say it, but sort of outperforming what culture was allowing them to do. Why? Because they were a part of this redemption story. And you absolutely see it on the day of Pentecost. And you see it in the New Testament stories. You see it how Jesus treated women. You see it how he had them as a part, though not one of the disciples, they were in his more inner circle. Again, even Paul, who is often seen in sort of some contemporaries' eyes as oppressive towards women, was extremely um, radical in his elevation of women, his calling out of people like Phoebe and, 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 and acknowledging what Junia as a prophetess, or was she an apostle? Well, the apostle. And so, and, and you see this in scripture over and over again. Yeah, there are the verses that you have to culturally understand. And we can't ignore those. We can't just say, oh, he didn't write that. But we have to interpret those in, in, in the eyes of the bigger scripture. And I don't want to go in, too deep into that, but Ron, that is, a, that is exactly the point I'm trying to make. Our view on women in ministry, our view on human sexuality, our view on social justice, we want that to come from scripture. Even if that offends those on the left or on the right in our current political... And, and, and if I can be really honest... If we're biblical, we're going to probably offend both sides. I mean, I'm, some, I'm sometimes offended when I read the scripture about how I want to view things. Uh, same on immigration. I don't, I don't want to get started on that, but think of, think of the Old Testament and what Jesus did, or excuse me, what the law did for immigrants. And again, scripture has to be what guides that. So I'm, that's a long answer. That's that's really good, and you're getting into episode two of our podcast, <laughs> Women in Leadership, uh, and then episode three 
um, whatever that one is what you just talked on. Um, well, I, I do appreciate you fleshing that on the specific example. Um, and it's, it's interesting, too, on the issue of slavery that uh, I'm sure the Wesleyan denomination, as it broke out, would have been viewed as very liberal <laughs> at the time. And, and uh, the, the more I've read and dug into that, um, there was some um, people that held very strongly to inerrancy that had pretty cogent arguments to keep their slaves that we would now look back on and say, wow, they were really off on that. And uh, so... So yeah, definitely setting the tone and pace there. So yeah, that that that's all right. I'll, I'm going to give up the mic because now I'm about to start preaching my own sermon. <laughs> one one fun fun fact: the I think the last letter that Wesley wrote, he wrote it from his deathbed. He wrote to William Wilberforce to encourage him to continue on the fight in Parliament. So there you go. Did Did you want to speak on this issue? Oh, go. how do how do, how do we how do we bring up how how do we bring a podcast to what was the question? Oh, we don't. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, thank you for speaking on the issue of uh, scripture and and elevating Christ. Uh, did anyone else want to speak on that this evening? Here, it's okay if not. Um, are there other questions from the audience? You're ready to call it can call it quits. Oh, Barb has a question. <laughs> uh, I'll make this quick. I'm just curious of the uh, historical setup. A Wesleyan comes from Methodism, mm -hmm. as you've said, and uh, there are other spinoffs of that too. Can you name those so I can kind of see that? Yeah, that's a really good question. In fact, my grandfathers, both of them, would be appalled that I have not mentioned the part of the tradition we came from, which is the Pilgrim Holiness tradition. So the Wesleyan Methodist tradition started in the 1840s or so with what we've been talking about. And then around the 1900s, there was the holiness revivals that spurred also the, uh, the Pentecostal revivals. So sort of in this idea of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, there were these... Um, they started out as prayer meetings and prayer groups that formed little denominations, one of them being the Pilgrim Holiness uh, Church, which is the tradition we're from. And to be really honest, it's the more legalistic of the two. And to be really, really honest, it's probably been brought, and probably that's why I have more of a, an awareness of the legalism, because it, 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 it resided more deeply in the Pilgrim Holiness side. I was tell, but, it, but theologically and all of those things, it's very much the same. The Wesleyan Methodists sort of brought the theological depth. The Pilgrim Holiness, so what they brought to the table was a, a lot of entrepreneurship, a lot of entrepreneurial thinking, a lot of the cutting edge stuff, a lot of what's still in our DNA, as, as Brian's been talking about, the desire of going after lost people no matter what comes from a Pilgrim Holiness sort of revivalistic mindset. So... Um, those two strands formed in 1968 to form the Wesleyan Church. They were about the same size. Uh, it's one of the, oh, speaking of mergers, it's one of the few mergers that's really been successful and there hasn't been sort of a swallowing of either. You'll still find a few people that still have the answer to the question, are you a pilgrim or a Wesleyan Methodist? I am forever grateful that we chose the name Wesleyan Methodist and we left the pilgrim holiness, both words off the table because those are just weird, even in 1968 and especially in 2021. So, 
So the Nazarene came from sort of the same tradition as the Pilgrim Holiness in that era and time, but never ran on the same track. They kind of ran on parallel tracks. Free Methodist is a similar thing with that that came out of that movement. There were a couple of other really small groups that joined our denomination, which no one really has ever heard of. And I can't even remember who it was. Sorry. Cool. That's great. Um, the, the last question, and i just curious about the church planting. We didn't quite get to that, and even if there's anything specific or things we can be thinking about or excited about um, with that. I'll let Josh handle that one. Yeah, yeah so I've, I've uh, served in the, the role of church multiplication director since 20, 2015, so about six years. And uh, so we have some really exciting things going on um, here locally, regionally. Uh, but it's really like it. It uh, uh, I, I love the, the the church planting and multiplication ethos that has really um, you know really come down uh, and and been supported by uh, the uh, by headquarters by the denomination at large. There's a goal to plant a uh, hundred churches um, in North America um, and in different districts and whatnot, 100 churches each year. So they really want to um, resource, educate, train, equip uh, churches, districts to see that those 100 churches, um, um, uh, yeah, happen. And so here locally, um, we have, uh, off the top of my head, I think there's five, six projects that we have. Um, So we have Garden City, um, we have Emporia, uh, we have Kansas City, um, we have True, True is still technically uh, uh, one of those projects. Uh, Westview planted True five years ago, four years ago. I think 2017, yeah. So it started as a multi-site and then spun off. And so um, who else am I forgetting? Iola is... Iola, yeah, yeah. There's, it's a really organic, missionally driven. Like we, we don't, we're open-handed with it because we're not quite sure how to categorize it, but we love that they're preaching the gospel um, to, to the Iola um, community and region. Um, yeah, where else? And there's there's yeah. another one in the works that's probably yes. The dot. The dot. I'm Kansas City. Okay. Yeah, but yeah, the dot. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah we're on one right now. And there's some there's some yeah near um we won't won't name drop yet. So anyway, yeah. but there's some aspirations for something on the near horizon um, that that uh, we we can get involved with. One dot. Oh, Hope United. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they're going to have their first. Um, Sunday here next year, um, and so it's still in that that gathering a team and and things like that. But it's very very exciting. So yeah, um, so yeah, I've I've loved being a part of it and and loved like it's it's just been really phenomenal. Taking we uh, you you're planning on on coming to Exponential with us in March along with Dave and and uh, some other people from from the district, Nate and his wife included, and and so uh, yeah, just love the investment of church planting and multiplication and and you know, wanting to reach more people for Jesus. So, you guys, anything else? Just from our heart, we're always, it's in our budget, we're always planning churches. That's something since day one, it's in our strategy. So we are currently with a church planning network in with in Wyandotte County. So we're excited about that one. True was the one before that. We've had church plant. We planted, help plant real life, which planted the well. Um, but Westview's history, we just, but internationally too, we work uh, in Kenya. We have one church plant there. The family went out and we actually have a Bible training center that we still fully support there. They've now planted 40 churches. And we just, we just sit back and say, we'll just keep supporting the Bible train, the trains the pastors. And so we're internationally, we, we're, we're always planting churches where we're at. And so it's just, it's always in our heart. 
Yeah, and we're we're teaming up with others right now, already looking at our next one because once Hope United's rolling, we're we're on the next one. So, well, great, thank you, Brian, Nate, Josh, yeah. Dave, running the sound. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for tuning in and. And uh, this can be uh, an ongoing conversation. So if there are questions that were that came up, bring them to us and we'll do our best to answer them. And, and uh, who knows, maybe this was the beginning of our podcast that we've talked about. So, hey, thanks for being here. And uh, that's it. We'll see you all later.